We've been studying through the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. You'll find them listed in your program on the sermon outline, as well as a number of other passages on the back. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So far the reading of God's Word. You know, back in the time of Jesus, there were no grocery stores 2,000 years ago. There were marketplaces in some towns and cities, but even then, food was not always readily available. There were no canned goods. There were no refrigerators. There were no preservatives besides salt that kept the food good. There was not enough clean drinking water. There was no Poland spring cooler to just stop and quench your thirst. There might be a well in the town, and even the well could at times be suspect, and you would have to go and carry your water back to your home. Have you ever been really hungry? So hungry that you were almost crazy. Have you ever been really thirsty, so thirsty that you were crazed with thirst? I'm not talking about some of you, what you're like when there's a long line at the drive-thru and you're impatient, you know. No, 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 no. In the ancient world, often people lived on the edge of desperate hunger and deep thirst. And so when Jesus carefully chose the words in this beatitude, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the people understood. You have a desire for food, you have a desire for drink, but when it becomes desperate, you start to crave food. You start to crave water. That's what craving is. It's a desire with an edge of desperation. And Jesus Christ teaches us, he teaches you and he teaches me that we are more than just bodies. You are more than just chemicals, a bag of chemicals enclosed in skin that need occasional hydration. You have a soul. You have a soul. And as your body gets hungry, and as your body gets dehydrated and thirsty, so your soul needs to feed, and it needs to drink. And our master, our teacher, was brilliant. This is, you see, this is the climax of the first four of the Beatitudes. The first four of the Beatitudes are really about how we relate toward God. And the next four are going to talk about how we relate toward other people. But now, now he is saying, so blessed are you, not just if you are poor in spirit and mourn or are meek, but if you hunger 
and thirst for righteousness. And I have three points in my text from my text this morning. The first is a question. What do you crave? What are you hungry and thirsty for? The second is that there is this priority that Jesus lays out that is shocking to some of us, that in the inner life of a disciple of Jesus, you must feed on Christ's righteousness. And then the third point is just a promise. He makes a promise at the end, and he says, as you feed on this righteousness, you will be filled. You will be satisfied. So, point number one, what do you crave And that's a good question, an important question for us. What is it that my soul, on Monday morning, on Wednesday morning, on Friday morning, as well as Sunday morning, what is it that my soul is hungry for? Because I, again, want you to realize God created your soul with an appetite. Psychologists call these things deep longings or felt needs. And the church has sometimes picked up on this idea that, well, we have felt needs and, and, and Jesus simply exists to meet my felt needs. And, and I know some churches that are totally built on this. All I'm about is teaching you how to get your felt needs met. But you see, something deeper is going on here. It's actually a very serious mistake just to say Jesus exists to meet my felt needs, my cravings. Because what Jesus is saying here is that wait just a minute. What is it that you feed your soul? What are you thirsty for? And listen, in our church, and some people don't like this that much, but in our church, what we do is we challenge each other to lift the lid, you know, the manhole cover down to the sewer. Lift the lid and look down inside my heart and say, what is it really that's going on inside my heart? And we've been practicing this for years as a church where we try and be honest What is it that's governing the hunger and thirsts of my soul? And just because I feel a need does not necessarily mean that that need should govern my existence. Let me be very direct here. What do you crave? Some of you would say, I crave work. I love my work. My work is everything to me. This is where I experience, I feel authentic as a person. My creativity gets to be expressed at work, and it's what gets me out of bed in the morning, and it's what I go to sleep thinking about at night. I love my work. And you know, God wired every one of us to work. Work is good. Work is biblical. But every one of us knows someone who's a workaholic, right? Every one of us knows somebody who's so utterly driven by who they are in their vocation that they've been willing to sacrifice their physical health for their work. They've been willing to sacrifice their family. They've, worst of all, sacrificed their spiritual life because they're so driven in their work. And I think Jesus is saying there's something better. Somebody else says, well, me, if I was honest, as I lift the lid, I have to be honest, I live for money. Because you need money. Everybody needs money, don't they? Yes, everybody needs money. 
And when I get to the end of my month and there's a little more money than month left, wow, do I feel good. And when there's not enough money at the end of the month, wow, do I feel terrible. And Jesus knows that we need currency in order to survive in this world, but he warned us, didn't he? He warned us. Nobody can serve two masters. You'll either love one or hate the other. And money, it is a need, but if it becomes the governing need of my life, Jesus says, you've lost God. Somebody else says, what I crave is relationship. I crave relationships. I crave family. I want so much to be married. Or if I have a family, I want so much for health in my family. And if my family's doing well, I'm euphoric. I feel great. If my family's not doing well, I'm devastated. The Bible honors the family. The Bible honors relationships. Relationships are good, but they can become idols. And we all know people who've made disastrous choices in relationships. People who are so desperate for a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, they go into an abusive relationship without thought of God or His ways, and it's a disaster. What do we crave? Some people crave sex. They crave it with a desperation or pleasure or entertainment. Now listen, it is a good thing to enjoy God's good creation in this world and to long for it. And to Even in sexuality, sexuality was made by God before the fall of man. It's a good thing in His boundaries that He's established in marriage. But... We all know people who've taken their lusts, whether it's sexual lust or lust for entertainment and for television or, or whatever it might be, and those lusts consume food, alcohol, sex, drugs, and they consume and they dominate and they capture, and those needs are destructive in their life. So, what do you crave? You get this sense we have craving hearts. And the believer, the believer hears Jesus say, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the great summons that we read earlier, I want you to hear it. Some of you came in after we read from Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty. See, the Bible knows you have cravings. The Bible knows you have desires. The Bible doesn't deny it. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. By God's grace, come, it's free, come. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. God knows your soul is hungry. He knows your soul is thirsty. And he gives us the example in Psalm 42, as the deer pants after streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O Lord. And the cravings, 
he says, are satisfied drinking at the Lord. Where can I go to meet God? God will satisfy my soul. And in the book of Revelation, there's this picture of a destiny, that the hunger you have actually has a destiny. I love this picture of heaven itself in heaven at Revelation 21. You you can read it on the back of your sermon outline. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And I don't know much about heaven, but I know this. There is a spring of the water of life, and if you're thirsty here in this world, he's going to slake that thirst and satisfy you forever and ever and ever from the water of life. Wow. So go back to this question, what do you crave? Where are your desires? Will you today, as you come to communion, as we come to communion today, Will you lift the lid on your own heart and say, okay, what's driving the hungers of my soul? Now, Jesus ties, this is point number two, he ties the proper hunger to the most important craving. And he says it should be righteousness. And so point number two, the disciples of Jesus, you and me in our inner lives, you and I must experience and feed on Christ's righteousness. Righteousness. Now, there's a religious word if I ever heard one. You know, when's the last time Channel 7 Action News talked about how you get righteousness or where you find righteousness? When's the last time, you know, the Washington Post had a headline on where to discover righteousness or the Wall Street Journal? Well, Jesus says, actually, for my believing, believing people, There is a craving, and there is a hunger, and there is a desire for righteousness. Now, this is one of the most interesting words in Scripture. And at its essence, righteousness is found in God, is modeled by God. And the word for righteousness is taking all of the attributes or the characteristics of God that Bill was talking about in the adult Sunday school class, and it takes those those attributes, God's God's holiness and God's love and God's wisdom and God's power and God's justice and God's wrath and God's mercy and God's compassion and it ropes them all together in perfect balance. And that is God's righteousness. There is nothing wrong with God. There is only right with God. He's righteous. He's straight. There's nothing crooked in God. That's what he's like. And so, when man was made, man was made to be righteous. Did you know that? You were created, Adam and Eve were created to be righteous. They were to be like God, perfect, balanced, holy like God. Now, the only person who ever got that right was Jesus. Am I correct on that? The only person who ever got it right was Jesus. And I love that story in, uh, when he's with the woman at the well in John 4, and after he's done with that on that hot day, the disciples come back to Jesus. Remember, they ask him, Hey, Master, do you want something to eat? Does anybody remember what Jesus replied 
And they said, do you want something to eat? And Jesus said, I have food that you don't know about. What, you have a picnic basket somewhere else, Jesus? What do you think Jesus is talking about, that food that he had? It was spiritual food. Jesus always hungered and thirsted for God and for righteousness. He's our picture of that. But we have a problem. I have a problem, and I don't think I'm the only one in this room. The problem is I'm not righteous like God. In fact, you'll see in Romans, in the book of Romans, where Paul is wrestling with this. He says in Romans 3.10, There is no one righteous. No, not one. In Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And so you could say the essence of sin is unrighteousness, turning away from that straight, holy way of God. And there's this general indictment. There's no one righteous. No, not one. I didn't come here today to insult you. I hope you don't feel insulted by me just reading this, but it's very clear. And the testimony of humanity is evident. There is no one righteous. No, not one. And we have to be very careful here because we are all tempted to minimize our unrighteousness or our sin. We're all tempted to excuse it away. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I told you about his great book on the Beatitudes, he says, he gets very serious about this. And he says, you know, all of us are at one point or another going to say things like, I'm only human. You ever hear someone say that? Or after they sinned or did something wrong and they say, I'm only human. Or they see their kids acting up and they say, boys will be boys. Or I can't help myself, I'm just like my mother. Husbands, don't say that. You're just like you never, ever, ever say that. But what Lloyd-Jones says is what's going on when we excuse our unrighteousness is we are revealing the fact that we really like our sin, and we really like it. You say, oh, no, I don't, I don't think I like my sin, but you see, we do. Studies on anger, people who have problems with rage, actually, people get high on anger. There's a kind of euphoria that comes with letting your rage out. People actually like the feeling in some perverse way they have in rage. With lust, sexual lust, we like that titillating, tantalizing lust that's inside us. We may hate it in some other sense, but there is an attraction to us. When we are greedy, we like the fantasy of, of having the piles of gold coin and sitting on top of it. We like it. And Lloyd-Jones says, lift the lid, take a look inside. What are ways you're actually attracted to your own unrighteousness? Because Jesus now comes along, and if we're really going to take him seriously, and he says, hunger and thirst after righteousness, then you say, well, how do I do that? 
And the answer is I need to feed on Christ for his righteousness. And the New Testament unpacks it so powerfully in at least several ways. Please pay attention. How do you hunger for righteousness? Well, if you know you're unrighteous, then you really want to be forgiven and you want your sins to be covered and you want to receive what we call imputed righteousness. This is a term that's very important for you to know. What is imputed righteousness? Imputed righteousness is credited righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us, received by faith. Listen to Romans 5, verse 19. It's talking about our justification. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. Our ultimate righteousness is given to us by another. It is an alien righteousness to us. It is credited or imputed to us. So you get down to Romans 3, verse 20. Listen to this. This is a shock to some of us. Therefore, it's on the back of your sermon outline, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God comes through faith. I'm sorry, but a righteousness apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So a righteousness in Jesus Christ comes to you if you just believe, not by keeping the law. That is a credited righteousness by faith. And that is what we call justification. Christian, you crave righteousness. means you crave forgiveness. You crave justification, the imputed righteousness of Jesus, so that you can stand on the judgment day. And on the judgment day, you say, I'm with him. And he says, he's with me. She's with me. But then, there's a second kind of righteousness and that is infused righteousness. And we hunger for Him to come to us and, and weave and pour His righteousness into our hearts so that our character gets transformed. And this is infused righteousness. We, we use a fancy term for that. It's a good term. It's called sanctification. Sanctification, where we die more and more to sin, and we live more and more to righteousness. There, I just quoted from the Shorter Catechism. And this is an operation that as you get hungry for righteousness, He does it in you. More and more you die to your sins, more and more you live to righteousness. Are you perfect? No, it's progressive. You're like the kid with a yo-yo walking up the stairs. This is the biblical doctrine of progressive sanctification. The biblical doctrine of progressive sanctification is you hunger for righteousness. You're like the little guy with the yo-yo, up and down, yes, but it's, but it's progressively up, walking up the stairs. And that's what he gives to us as routinely we feed on him. See, I love the metaphor of feeding because you don't just eat at the beginning of your Christian walk. You feed all the time, again and again, throughout the day. Some of us graze, 
but we eat at least three times a day and sometimes more. Look at Romans. This is on the back of your outline here. Romans 6, 17 through 19. A verse you need to know. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Okay, anybody else here who's weak in their natural selves? Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. And when that happens, as in the inner self you're feeding on Christ, the qualities of God become yours. Love starts to replace hate. Generosity starts to replace stinginess. Kindness starts to replace being mean. Humility starts to replace pride and arrogance. The fruit of the Spirit replaces the deeds of the flesh. So, how does this happen? There's a danger right here. There's a danger in, in, in our tradition, in our Bible-believing Presbyterian tradition, there's a great danger. And in the conservative Bible movement, there's a great danger. Here's the danger. Some of you might walk out of here and say, the pastor told me I need to get my act together. I better start keeping the law of God so that I can establish my own righteousness. And Paul in Romans 10 says that is a fatal error. And it's been a terrible error that the church has committed, that the preacher stands up and wags his finger and tells you, try harder, keep the law better, be nicer. Because I said so. Look at Romans 10, verses 3 and 4. Since This is the mistake the Jews made, Israel made in the time of Jesus. Since they did not know the righteousness, there's that word, that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Where is the source of this new righteousness? It's not in trying harder or being nicer or doing better. It only comes through Christ, the end of the law. Your relationship, personal relationship, life-giving, feeding relationship, drinking deeply from the water that He gives, That new righteousness comes. And Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Now, when you have your daily quiet time, your private worship, you need to thank Him for that imputed righteousness and take your sins to Him. But you need to ask Him for that that, uh, infused righteousness and newness of life. Because I don't know what you struggle with. Some of you struggle with stinginess. Some of you struggle with being mean. Some of you struggle with lust and, and, and love of pleasure. Some of us struggle with pride and arrogance. Some of us struggle with workaholism. Some of us struggle with a ministry obsession that thinks ministry is what makes me who I am. I don't know who's like that. but And they're all 
these cravings that are false, idolatrous cravings. And instead, we hunger and thirst for Christ, our righteousness. And point three, you have the promise that Jesus makes. Listen carefully, because carefully, I want you to believe this today, that as you feed on His righteousness, you get satisfied. Teenagers especially, I want you to hear this from me. As you feed on Jesus, you will be satisfied. Oh, the whole world is your oyster. The whole world is out there, and it looks so enticing. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the most satisfying food for your soul. You will, he says, be filled. The other night, I had a meal. Oh, I had a great meal. And I pushed away from the table, and I waddled off, and I said, I'm full. And I don't usually overeat, really, I don't. But that night, I was just fine. I was full, and I was satisfied. And that's the picture that Jesus gives when you are hunger and thirst, hungering and thirsting for Him and His righteousness. You'll be satisfied. Do your work. Do your work well, but don't be a workaholic. Find your satisfaction in Jesus. If you're married and have a family, love your family. Give yourself to them. Enjoy them, but be careful. Don't make them an idol. You need money? Of course you need money, but watch out. Guard your heart because all the riches are yours in Jesus Christ. You are rich. You are rich. He's blessed us with all the blessings in the heavenly places. You'll be satisfied. I made my little list today. God is more satisfying than atheism. Love is so much more satisfying than hate. Kindness. The kindness of Christ is so much better than cruelty and just you being mean. Oh, the kindness of Jesus, so much better. Hope is better than despair, more filling than despair. Heaven is so much more filling than annihilationism, that there's nothing after you die. And I'll tell you what, fellowship with you Hanging out with you is so much better than any club or any gathering, any gang. It's so good to be in the body of Christ. It's more satisfying than anything. The risen Christ is more filling and satisfying than any philosopher or teacher or idol that you might have. Jesus said, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never thirst. And the Christian is this mysterious person who is filled and satisfied and yet hungry and yet filled and yet hungry and yet filled and yet hungry. Lloyd-Jones says we are this wonderful mystery 
until we get to heaven. So come and worship every Sunday and get filled on Christ. Every morning, go to your private worship and meet with the Lord and hunger for Him. And once a month, come to the sacrament. Once a month, come to communion. Once a month, come. And in that holy mystery, feed on Christ at the point of your great need, at the point of your desperate need, at the point of your terrible need. Feed on Christ in your hearts by faith, and He will meet you. Come, all who are thirsty, come, buy, and eat without cost by His grace. Let us pray. O oh Lord, Give us some satisfaction right now of feeding on you in our hearts by faith, we pray. Help us to lift the lid on our hearts now as we come to communion and be honest about those lusts and so-called felt needs and set us free, we pray, to hunger and thirst first and foremost for you. Oh, Lord, maybe there's someone here today who says, my faith is so puny. This is too good to be true. We pray for them right now. We pray that they would know it is so good and it is true. In Jesus' name, amen. I would invite...